we are continuing with our Let Justice Flow series right now. And the title of today's sermon is Justice for Jesus. Justice for Jesus. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us mightily by the power of your word and spirit. I will confess that I find myself to be woefully inadequate and largely unqualified for the task that has been set before me in these days, the task of proclaiming the gospel in the midst of both a pandemic and a revolution. And I often find myself at your mercy. And so I ask you, would you overshadow me by the power of the cross of Jesus? And would you speak your word to your children? May the words be yours and not mine. And I pray for open hearts, open ears, and open minds to receive the implanted word, which is able to save us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with uh, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. Jesus is praying this prayer as he is approaching the cross. And he says here in verses 20 and 21 of John 17, he says, My prayer is not for them alone, speaking of his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus, he is crying out as he approaches the cross. As the days of his earthly ministry are coming to an end, it's as almost as if he could foresee all of the division that has transpired throughout the ages. And he cries out to the Father, the prayer that I pray is that you would make them one and that the mark of their unity would be our unity, yeah. that they would be one the way we are one, right? So here's the cry of Jesus, that they may be one. First of all, we must understand that Jesus gave his life not only for our salvation, but also for our unity. That is, he paid the ultimate price on the cross, not simply that we might go to heaven when we die, but that we might be unified while we are here. That is, he... When we're talking about the unity of the church, we're not, it, the, the unity of the body of Christ is an issue that transcends race, it transcends gender, it transcends orientation, it transcends nationality, it transcends politics, it transcends government, it transcends history, it transcends every human issue. We're not simply talking about justice for a people group, we're talking about justice for Jesus. We're talking about the lamb who was slain receiving the reward of his suffering. That's, that's what we're talking about. And I think about those two Moravians who felt called of God to preach the gospel to a particular group of Africans in a particular region. And this particular island was a slave island. Everyone there was a slave. And when they asked how they could get there, they were told, you can only get there if you're a slave. So they sold themselves as slaves. And as they were leaving on the boat to go to that island, they cried out to their family members who stood weeping by the shore, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward for his suffering. May the lamb who was slain. They were trying to get justice for Jesus. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward 
for his suffering. My cry is, the, is that the lamb who was slain might receive the reward for his suffering right here in the United States of America. And when we talk about our cry for justice, our cry for freedom, we're talking about let justice flow, letting justice flow, uh, we're talking about something that the heart of God aches for. Uh, this is the cry of Jesus Christ. It's not just the cry of a people. And if we, what can obscure the issue is, is getting it into our heads and into our hearts and into our minds that this is all about a, the color of our skin. This is about Jesus, the lamb who was slain. So, but not only that, but unity is actually a precursor for world revival. Look what he says here at the end of John 17, 21. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is literally saying that if we would, that, that our oneness is the mark of the truthfulness of the gospel. If we learn how to live as one, if we understand oneness, if we become one, if we achieve reconciliation and unity, the world is able to see that God sent Jesus. The truth of the gospel becomes apparent, not through a divided church, but through a unified church. Amen. That is the unification of the church and the reconciliation of the members of the body of Christ is actually a precursor for world revival. If we are able to do this, if we are able to see reconciliation in our day and in our time and in our generation, it will be a great sign to the world that the gospel is true, that Jesus is real. And so because of that, we're willing to fight for this and we're willing to fight for it with all of our hearts because what we are actually fighting about, what we are actually fighting for, not about, but what we are actually fighting for is the gospel going forth into all the world. But the great travesty is that a church divided has a, a, uh, a, a truncated witness. The power of our witness has been compromised by the state of our disunity. Yeah. Segregation is an affront to the blood of Jesus. Huh. Segregation is an affront to the blood of Jesus. Yeah. Segregation is an affront to the blood of Jesus. I think we've got to keep that in mind. Now, I know when I use the word segregation, the first thing that comes to our minds is something that is past, that we no longer live in a segregated nation. I wish that were true. Um, Rucker Johnson makes the point in his book that there's the difference between de jure and de facto. De jure has to do with something that is codified into law. De facto has to do with something that is a choice. It's a reality, even though it's not codified into law. And so from in the Jim Crow days, you know, from uh, about 1867 until 1954, segregation was de jure. It was actually written into law. And these laws were called the Jim Crow laws. In 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education overturned segregation, deeming it unconstitutional. Um, of course, it was a direct contradiction of the 15th Amendment. It actually nullified the 15th Amendment. And so now you have, in terms of law, segregation is overturned in 1954. Uh, however, you still, had you still had de facto segregation. That is the fact that 
it was no longer codified into law did not mean that from that moment we were an integrated nation. In fact, we were still largely segregated. And so in the mid-60s, you had a, a sequence of lawsuits uh, that African-American families brought against predominantly white schools and organizations. Uh, what we were trying to do is simply get the, the nation to honor Brown versus the Board of Education. And so the Supreme Court in the mid-60s began to enforce Brown versus the Board of Education and force white schools to allow black students to come. And of course, we all know, uh, you know, Ruby Bridges, uh, she was the first, she was six years old. She's still alive today. She's actually in her 60s right now, in her mid-60s. Um, but these first African-American students who were brought into these white schools, they were spat upon, they were cursed at, they were threatened. Uh, they had to be escorted in by police officers. Um, it, there was just a clear and nationwide distaste for anything that resembled integration. Matter of fact, uh, the churches were largely, um, the churches in America were, uh, were largely uh, complicit um, with this agenda of segregation. Uh, and they were actually preaching that integration is an abomination and it's something that, that uh, God is very angry about. And so um, really that, that anger, um, that racist anger was justified biblically. Um, so um, the reality is, okay, so he here's the key. The thing is, there was this enforcement of integration in the 60s that pervaded into the early 70s, uh, but then something happened called the white flight. And the white flight was when the white families abandoned the cities and built the suburbs. And that movement abandoned the inner cities to, to, the, to poor black people. Uh, it created the povertization of the inner city and uh, also the government subsidized the move to the suburbs by creating the FHA loan. Uh, simultaneously, banks, uh, that there's a documented concerted effort on the part of banks uh, to deny homeownership to African-American families in the city as well, also devaluing the property in the inner city. There was redlining and all of these historic forces. So what we find, and, and I say all this to say this, that Integration in America was at its highest in the mid-70s. But from the mid-70s until the current day, really from the mid-70s until the early 90s, there was a process called resegregation, meaning the, the courts forced us to mingle for a hot minute and then we resegregated again. The white families moved to the suburbs, abandoned the blacks to the inner cities. The point I'm making is that today in America, today, 2020, which is like... We're talking like we've made so much progress in the world, but our churches are still 87% segregated. That is, right now, at this hour, 11.38 a.m. on Sunday morning, is the most segregated hour of the week. And it's the church. The church that's supposed to be, you know, we've got the blood of Jesus, and we've got the word of God, and we've got the Holy Spirit. This should be the most integrated, the most united hour of the week in our nation. We should be the exemplars of unity and oneness and of coming together. But right now, the churches are still racially segregated. Now, remember, I said segregation is an affront to the blood of Jesus Christ. Our schools have been resegregated. Do you realize that the segregation level in our schools right now rivals the segregation level that we saw in the early 60s wow. when law, lawsuits had to be brought? 
Rucker, Rucker Johnson explains that. Like our schools are still as segregated right now in 2020 as they were in 1964, uh, which is crazy, but it's not, it's not legal anymore. It's, it's by choice. Like literally we have made a choice that we want to stay separate and the workplace is still largely segregated as well. Um, so I say all that to say, uh, what do we do? Like if we want to see justice flow, the first thing I want you to know is that my hope for the coming of justice in this country and unity in this country yes. is not politics. It's not government. It's the, it's the church. Yes. It's the body of Christ. We have to see this as a spiritual issue. We have to lead the way, right? I mean, isn't that what God said? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek yes. my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. If we want to see our land healed, then God's people who are called by God's name are going to have to humble themselves and pray, seek his face, turn from their wicked ways, and then he will hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land. Okay? Now, so what's the model for this? I want to, I want to talk about uh, unity in the book of Acts. All right? So Jesus cries out that there may be one. We can actually see this oneness that Jesus cried out for playing itself out in the book of Acts. But there's kind of three levels to the unity that we find in the book of Acts. So first of all, uh, there's this homogenous unity. Oftentimes when we talk about, you know, we need a new move of the Holy Spirit. We need, we need a new Pentecost. We need a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, if you look at Acts chapter 2 and you see, you know, we like to make much of this actually, and we should make much of this, but there's a context to this. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place and in one accord. So there's this unity that is the precursor for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there's this idea that if we would just come together in one place and in one accord, that, that unity would be the precursor to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What we don't often notice is that this unity that was in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 was a homogenous unity. What do I mean by that? In the upper room were 120 people who were all Jerusalem Hebrew-speaking Jews who grew up within a few mile radius of one another. Yeah. So it was homogenous. It would be equivalent to a white church coming together, all white people, all together in one accord. Or a black church coming together, all black people, in one place and in one accord. Um, that Acts 2 unity, Acts 2 verse 1 unity, is actually not the goal. This was, this is as far as we could get without the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This homogenous unity. This is the best we can do without a move of the Spirit of God. Yeah. Is simply connect with people who look like us, sound like us, share our values, understand our history. Um, and this, this, this uh, tendency that we have is, and, you know, we all have the tendency. I want to be in a church with people who look like me, with people who sound like me, with people who understand me. I want to be in a church with people who are my age. I want to be in a church with people who understand my background. Or, you know, I, I, we have this kind of desire for homogeneity, to connect with like-minded um, individuals who we all understand each other, we all get it. There's a certain comfort there. And in that type of homogenous setting, fellowship is low-hanging fruit. Right? Fellowship is low-hanging fruit uh, when, the, when your community group consists of uh, seven 32-year-old black kids 
uh, from the inner city or um, just pick up. Yeah, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> All right. But the second level unity is actually um, Acts 2.44. So, so the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2. There comes a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It fills the house. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. And there's gathered in Jerusalem at that time uh, devout Jews from every nation under heaven. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Smyrnians, Mesopotamians, and, and all of these different uh, nationalities. And uh, Peter preaches to this diverse crowd of individuals. Pentecost sermon. The first thing that the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit produces is a diverse crowd to hear it. That is the first thing the Holy Spirit produces is diversity. Meaning if we haven't even arrived at diversity, we haven't yet seen an outpouring of the Holy Spirit yet. We focus on the Holy Spirit producing tongues I think tongues was an, an experiential byproduct of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But what the, whole, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit actually produced and created was diversity. Yeah. Right? Now look at Acts 2.44. Now all who believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among them all as anyone had need. Yeah. So there's this second level unity. Um... That's called diversity. And this diverse unity now is a coming together of people. Number one, they spoke different languages because there's Hebrews and there's Hellenists. And we're going to see that in a second. Uh, number two, they come from different nations. So they have um, different values. Um, and then number three, they have different levels of need. But what this next level unity looked like was not just all being in one place and in one accord, being of the same mind and the same heart, but that there was a sharing of wealth among them. They all had all things common, which meant that the common good was the core of the community. So this is next level unity. This is diverse unity. And this is the fruit of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. However, that unity was untested. Yeah. And that unity needed to be tested, and that unity was tested in Acts 6. Mm. And so, if you go to Acts 6, what you find in Acts 6 is that as the number of the disciples was multiplying, there was a protest. Um, now, understand that historically, in Israel at this time, there were really two different classes of Jews. So this is still a, simply a, a level of unity. This is, this is not full diversity because even though all of these individuals come from different nations, they're all Jews or proselytes or God-fearers. But they're all Jewish people predominantly. But there's two classes of Jews at this time. There were the Hebrews and the Hellenists. And the Hebrews were the Hebrew-speaking Jews who really stayed close in Israel. They lived in, in the land of Israel. Um, and then there were the Hellenists. And the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews who, had, who were children of the dispersion. The dispersion was uh, the Jews were scattered throughout the Greco-Roman Empire uh, sometime in the 300s B.C. I believe, I believe it was somewhere around 365 B.C. 
And um, that was the tactic of Alexander. Alexander the Great, when he would conquer any given nation, he would take a, a percentage of, of the, uh, the population there, spread them throughout his empire. That way, nobody could band together and, and kind of revolt. And so what he did was he created this melting pot. And so what bound it all together was you had to learn Greek. Everybody had to speak Greek. It was the, the, uh, the common language of the empire. So you have these Jews who have been living outside of Jerusalem for, for more than 300 years by the time of the early church, which means that they had been separated from their language. I mean, I, I, uh, I worked at a Korean church when I was in college, and these kids were uh, second-generation Koreans uh, that I was leading, meaning their parents were born in Korea but moved to the United States, and their kids were born in, in the United States. And even these second-generation Koreans were simply one generation away from the homeland. They didn't speak Korean. They understood it, but they couldn't speak it back. And you'd see uh, these parents would come in and say to their kid, you know, uh, Tamiya, Paliwa, you know? And Tommy would go, oh, come on, Dad. Or, oh, come on, Mom. I'm not ready to go yet. And so the, the parent would speak to the child in Korean, and the child would speak back to the parent in English because the child could understand Korean but not speak it, many of them. Well, imagine Tommy's kids. Uh, Tommy will... Tommy will speak English but understand Korean, his kids will speak English and only understand English. Can you imagine 365 years from now uh, what that would look like um, for those who have, have, uh, have been diaspora? Uh, they will not even remember uh, the memory of the, the, the languages is not there. So these Jews had not spoken Hebrew for hundreds of years. And so their Hebrew Bible even was translated into the Greek language. It was called the Septuagint. And so, um, just as in our culture, I mean, just I mean, you, you hear it, uh, Mexican Americans who go to Mexico and don't speak English. Uh, sometimes you hear stories about they're looked down upon by the natives, the Mexico people who are, are living there in Mexico. You don't speak Spanish. What's wrong with you? Uh, Korean Americans who go to Korea, they get that. You don't speak Korean. What's wrong with you? There's this kind of looking down. Uh, I love Trevor Noah. He talked about you know growing up in South Africa and looking forward to coming to America, and he said. Uh, <laughs> when he got to New York, he was so excited and he was going to be black. You know, that was the whole thing. I'm going to be black. I can't wait to be black. And uh, he said he was met at the airport by somebody who starts speaking to him in Spanish. And he goes, excuse me, I don't speak Spanish. And the guy looked at him and said, you don't speak no Spanish? And he said, no, I don't. He said, you should be ashamed of yourself. And he said, man, all this time I got to America and I'm still not black. I'm Puerto Rican, right? Um, so, I mean... Yeah, so this is what's happening with these two groups of Jews in, in Jerusalem. you got the Hebrews and the Hellenists. And, uh, but the Hebrews looked down on the Hellenists. So there's this superiority-inferiority complex that was burgeoning there. When the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts 2, everybody was so excited about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they forgot that there was any division among them. They forgot that this whole historic superiority-inferiority thing existed. And there was such a, a, a reveling in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that maybe people even thought that we've overcome that. Maybe people even thought that that's in our past, that that's behind us, that this new reality of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has made us one to the degree that we no longer have any cause to revisit these historic divisions between us because they exist no more. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the oneness that we experience in Christ can actually bring us to a place where we believe that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has completely done away with the divisions between us 
not realizing that in actuality there's still a conversation that needs to be had. That we actually have to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Receiving the Spirit together is one thing, but maintaining the unity of the Spirit, that takes work. And that's Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, in all lowliness and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Another translation says, striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That understanding that striving is almost in every situation a bad thing in the Bible. But when it comes to the unity of the Spirit, Paul says you're going to have to expend some effort. Strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You're going to have to fight for it. Yeah. So what happens somewhere between Acts 2 and Acts 6 is that the disparity between Hebrew and Hellenist reemerges. And the Hebrews actually don't even realize it. And how could they? Because they're not harmed by it. The only way they know is because the Hellenists protested. Had the Hellenists not protested in Acts 6, the Hebrews would have never known that there was even a problem. And so the Hellenists, they speak up and they say, our widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, we don't know what that neglect looked like. It could have been that the, the Hellenists, and I've read several commentaries on this issue, it could have been that the Hellenists were simply receiving a smaller portion than the Hebrew widows were. It could have been that the Hellenists were simply told to wait to see if we have any left after we take care of the Hebrew widows. But whatever it looked like, the Hebrew widows were prioritized above the Hellenistic widows, the Hellenist widows. And the clear message that that sent to the Hellenists was, you're not as important as we are. And the Hellenists rightly protested. And the moment the protest occurred in Acts 6, now the unity of the body of Christ is tested. Now it's tested. It's tested through protest. Yeah. In order for our unity to be tested, there must be protest. And, and in fact, we might be even tempted to think that the Hellenists, by protesting, were creating trouble or were trying to disunify us. But in actuality, on the other side of the protest of the Hellenists was a higher level of unity than could have been achieved without their protest. Wow. And the test was, how is the apostolic community going to deal with this protest? How are they going to respond to it? So first of all, the, the, the 12, they summon the multitude, they think about it together, and here's what they say in verse 2. I wish I had created a slide for this, but I didn't, sorry. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So this is the part that we like to focus on in this passage, that the disciples say, We're not going to abandon the ministry of the word in order to wait tables. 
What I see behind that is it's probable that the people that the Hellenists said to the disciples, to the to the twelve apostles, we want you guys to personally oversee the daily distribution to make sure there's equality. We need you twelve to come stand on the floor and watch every distribution, every moment of the distribution that happens to make sure that it's right. And the apostles had prayed about it and they came back to the multitude and said, that's not our place. It's not our job. It's not right for us to abandon, to neglect the ministry of the word and spirit, the word of God in prayer, so that we can wait tables. Now, at first, I could imagine the hearts of the Hellenists must have dropped. But what they said next is amazing. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of great reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to the prayer and the ministry of the word. So there's a desire on the part of the apostles to deal with this quickly. But they know that in order to deal with it quickly, they must deal with it fully. They know that if they don't deal with it fully, it's going to keep coming back to them again and again and again. And they know that the system needs an overhaul. So what they say is seek out seven men from among you. Now the question is, who is you? Because they're talking to the whole multitude, meaning Hebrews and Hellenists. The question is, when they said seek out seven men from among you, who were they talking to? Well, the evidence of the text actually suggests that now they're only talking to the Hellenists. They're saying to the Hellenists, give me seven of your men who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom that we can entrust this ministry to. And the reason I know that is because if you look at the names of the seven deacons that were chosen, they all have Hellenistic names. Their names are all Greek. Verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. The disciple, the apostles said, we're going to, we are going to guarantee equality, not by simply picking one Hellenist and putting him on the board, but by replacing the Hebrew board with the Hellenist board. I'm saying that's what they did here. I'm not saying in every situation, this is what has to happen. I'm saying this is how they dealt with it. And these seven deacons were chosen. They set them before the apostles. The apostles laid their hands on them. And here is the most important verse here in verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Wow. This, this is unity. Yeah. This is, you want to talk about unity? Wow. There was not a single Hebrew in the crowd who said, this is reverse discrimination against Hebrews. There was not a single Hebrew in the crowd that says, I'm not working for no Hellenist. Literally, some Hebrews had to lose their jobs so that these Hellenists could take their place. And some Hebrews that didn't lose their jobs now had to work for this Hellenist board. As well as the Hebrew widows had to accept smaller portions because the pot didn't get bigger. It's simply being distributed evenly now. So so the the Hebrew widows had to hear, I'm going to get less. And the Hebrews who were leading the system had to say, I'm going to lose my job. And the whole multitude said, the Hebrew and Hellenist multitude said, this is right. Wow. 
This is the, the saying pleased the whole multitude. And what's the result? What's the result? Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Then the word of God spread. Wow. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. <laughs> and a great many of the priests were obe obedient to the, the faith. What was the result? Revival. <laughs> Revival was the result. Yes. Revival was the result. Their willingness to establish justice quickly and thoroughly, the fruit of it, was revival. Amen. Let me say to you that if we as the body of Christ in the United States of America are willing to deal with this issue and deal with it thoroughly and do what it takes to establish justice quickly, the result will be revival. But we, we're not waiting for the government to do it. We're not waiting for politicians to do it. We're not waiting for the Democrats to do it. We're not waiting for the Republicans to do it. We are, we are, we are seeking the Holy Spirit and, and we're simply called of God at this hour to open our hearts... And to embrace the cry for justice. Why? Because what we're truly seeking is justice for Jesus. Amen. Amen. And in order for Jesus to get the reward of his suffering, there must be worldwide revival. Yes. So good. There must be worldwide revival. The word of God has to spread. You know, oftentimes when we talk about our cry for revival, we're seeking an Acts 2 revival. Lord, send a new Pentecost. Yeah, true. And that's good. That's cool. As a matter of fact, I love Acts 2 revivals. Yes. We need to see more people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit among us. Yeah. I'm convinced. I, I, I long for that. I pray for that. I'll never give up on that. But the kind of revival our nation needs right now is an Act 6 revival. Wow, yes. We need Act 6. And until we get to Act 6, I don't believe we can go back to Acts 2. Wow. I don't believe we're going to see any more Acts 2 revivals until we see an Act 6 revival. But if the Spirit of God leads our nation to Acts 6, buckle up is what I'm saying. Because if we as the body of Christ, if we actually arrive at Acts 6, if we actually have our Acts 6 moment and come together, if, if, there's a, if there is an awakening across the body of Christ, that the blood of the Lamb, that our segregation is an affront to the blood of Christ, hold on to your britches. There's going to be a, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that makes the crooked places straight. Amen. And the only question is, are we more interested in our political ideologies? Are we more interested in clinging to our privilege than we are in seeing the Lamb receive the reward of His inheritance? I have many more things I want to share with you, and I think I'm going to save it for next week because next week I think I'm going to talk about Azusa Street, 1906, 
and compare it to Acts 2 so that we can see how this dynamic played out and how we had an Acts 2 at Azusa Street, but we never made it to Acts 6. Wow. Let justice flow. Yes. Let justice flow. Mm. I'm gonna invite my wife to come sit next to me and then we're gonna pray because uh, I know I've said what I need to say today, but I don't know what to do next. <laughs> so let's pray. Mm. Lord Jesus, we come before you today as mm. your people. Yes. And we set our hearts mm. on the cry mm. of the Lamb yes, that we may be one. Lord, it is an affront to the blood of Christ that in 2020, the church in America is as segregated as it was in 1964. It is an affront to the blood of Christ Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would send a new move of the Holy Spirit mm. to awaken our hearts and our minds that we may be one. Holy Spirit, remove the hindrances in our hearts. Remove the blockages in our minds. And Father, I'm not just praying for Living Hope Christian Center because God, you have given us a multicultural, multi-ethnic expression of the kingdom of God. But yeah. Father, we still have work to do as a congregation as well. And I pray that you would make us a model mm. of what it looks like to come together, brother to brother, red, yellow, black, and white. They are all precious in his sight. I pray that you would make us a model of that. Mm. But I pray, Father, not just for our church, but for our nation. Mm. That the divisions among us in the body of Christ that are an affront to the blood of your son, that you would bring repentance and that you would bring renewal and that a new cry for a new kind of revival mm. would emerge and mm. that that cry would arise and fill the heavens, mm. that you would send times of refreshing mm. from your presence and that you would send Jesus, whom the heavens have received until the appointed time. Mm. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Wow. Amen.